We are in Luke chapter 14. We're going to be at verses 25 through 35 today. I want to encourage you to find that passage in your Bible or your smartphone. And uh, may I remind you that every week we have Bibles out on the table, and we just welcome you to pick one up, follow along with us every week. Luke chapter 14. A research study done by the Barna Research Group found that seven of ten adults choose their earthly family over their heavenly father. One third said their entire nuclear family is more important than God. 22% named their said their kids are the most important in their lives. And 3% identified their parents as the most important relationship in their lives. What about you? Who or what is the most important person or most important thing in your life? Is it a boyfriend or girlfriend? A son or daughter? Husband or wife? A parent? Who? Who is the most important person? Where does God fit in to your equation this morning? Jesus Christ called us to follow him, to follow his leadership. He is the leader. That's why we name this the Gospel of Luke, follow the leader, because he is our Lord. In Luke 14, our passage today Jesus calls us to the highest standards of discipleship. In this passage, perhaps are the, the principles in this passage are the highest standards of discipleship. It's a hard passage to explain in many ways, and it's a hard passage to apply in many ways. It's all about priorities, especially what is or who is your highest priority. So uh, in verses 25 through 27, we're going to start the passage, and I've entitled it, My Highest Priority of Following Jesus. My Highest Priority. Um, Can we say that today? Is this your highest priority in your life? Verse 25 is the context, and uh, it says that Large crowds, Luke is recording this for us, the story and the life of Jesus. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. Then he's going to talk, and we're going to look at that in just a minute. But So let's just set the context here in Luke chapter 14. Where have we been? Well, you will remember that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and it's going to be his last trip. In fact, uh, he's going to Jerusalem, and he's going to die there. He's going to be nailed to a cross, and he's going to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus has just been in the home of a prominent Pharisee. You remember that the last couple of weeks? And um, he he talked about uh, great banquets, and he told people good places to sit, and he told uh, his audience good people to invite. And today, uh, he raises the bar for what it means to follow him. He wants no one to be surprised. Now think about that. Think about his audience right then. He's got a band of 12 that have been following him everywhere for the past three years. And he's got a lot of other people that are following closely, highly committed to his cause. 
But he wants to be very clear about what's ahead. He knows what's ahead for him. He knows he will lay down his life. He knows that to follow him will be costly. He knows that his disciples will face a violent death. And many other followers in the New Testament period faced a violent death. And he is equipping them for what is ahead. And he's also equipping us. Verse 26, he gives a test example. And here comes, this is a hard one. We brought this up last week. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. What do you think of that? Those are hard words. And Jesus has really raised the bar, the standard for what it means to be a true disciple, a genuine disciple. Now, if you, if you follow Jesus, you know that Jesus said things to get people's attention. He said things that just grabbed people and got them sometimes angry, got them talking, got them asking questions. It's exactly what he did here. Um, this was an attention getter. Uh, was Jesus asking people to violate the law of the Old Testament when it said to honor your father and mother, when it said to love your neighbor as yourself? Was Jesus asking his followers to violate that? No, he wasn't. Uh, Jesus was using hate, but he got everybody's attention. Got your attention this morning too. Still works, doesn't it? He was using hate as a Hebrew idiom. It's showing comparison. Now, God used this in the Old Testament, so Jesus is in good company. In the prophet uh, Malachi, God said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And it wasn't that God didn't love Esau. It was used as a comparison, that there was a priority. God chose Jacob over Esau. It was, it was used as a comparison. And Jesus is using this in a way to show comparison. Jesus is not using the word hate like we do, like we are accustomed to. For us, is to, to hate means to abhor, to detest, to loathe, to be disgusted with, to be repelled at, to despise. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is making a comparison, and he's saying that my allegiance to Christ must have a higher priority than any other allegiance, even to my family and every person in it. Jesus is calling for the highest priority. Now, it doesn't mean to... Uh, well, let me look at uh, Matthew 10, verse 37. This is a corollary kind of passage. Anyone who loves their father... So this isn't about hate. This is about love. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And again, this is about a comparison. This is about priority. This is about Jesus having the highest place. It does not mean you should not love your husband or your wife or your kids. You just go ahead and love them all you want. But there is a higher priority than all of them. In fact, I would argue that you're going, to be, you're going to be able to love your wife better. You're going to be able to love your husband better. You're going to be able to love your kids better if you put Jesus first. Because there's going to be more to give from you. And there's going to be an unending strength that comes from him. And there's going to be a time for you to make better decisions because you have a sense of heaven's perspective. And sometimes with people we love, we say yes to things because we love them, and they're not always good for them. Um, now, as I thought about this, and I'm not going to boast here, I'm just going to be honest, my struggle is not putting my family first. My struggle is putting me first. That's a mistake I make most often, is I just elevate myself and sort of set Jesus aside and think about in my world and what I want, what should I do? That's a danger for me. Total commitment, verse 27. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is making the group that's following him very small. He's, pay, he's placing standards. They're becoming limitations. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What is he talking about here? He's... Jesus brought this idea up before earlier. We, we saw it in chapter 9. His disciples didn't really understand this. They didn't really know that Jesus was going to die on the cross. He talked about it. It wasn't clear to them that he would be nailed to a cross. He would pay the uh, penalty of the sins of the world. He would offer forgiveness to all people through his death on the cross. They don't see this coming, even though there's plenty of passages in the Old Testament to help them in the Old Testament to help them see this coming. But they did understand something about carrying a cross because it was a common occurrence in the first century, even in the land of Israel, because Israel was ruled by the authority of Rome and the presence of the Roman army and the Romans. So the Roman government had authority and uh, they laid down the law. And they had a way of treating uh, certain criminals and any acts of treason and it required death by crucifixion. And to do this, they would, the person who was found guilty was strapped to a crossbar, some kind of a beam. It wasn't the whole cross. It was just a crossbar. Later, it would be attached to the other part of the cross. And they would have to walk through the city, just like Jesus did in Jerusalem, and be on display because they wanted the whole city to see what happens when people break the law. There will be justice, and it will be quick, and it will be harsh. And so to carry the crossbar, they got that picture. And it's probably not going to make sense to these uh, disciples until after they see Jesus carry his. Uh, 
and think of the implications of um, what it would mean. Because carrying a crossbar, when a criminal did, it identified them in total submission to the power of Rome. And it identified them as a dead man walking. And that's what Jesus is pointing out for his followers. I want you to carry your cross. I want you to identify with me. I want you to be sold out all of the way to your grave. I want you to be all in. There's no return. Um, he, wants them, he wants his followers to live sacrificially. And he's preparing some of those in his audience who will face a violent death. No surprises. It's coming. We saw this earlier in Luke 9, verse 23. Uh, he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And I, I, this is really a helpful. It's a daily thing. It's about, okay, I need to think about this. I need to think about uh, who's leading my life. Can I submit to the Lordship of Christ? Am I willing to live sacrificially for Him? And uh, it's about being intentional. It's about submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Okay, second part of this, verses 28 through 33. My cost of following Jesus. What does it cost to follow Jesus? Well, let me make clear that when a person comes to faith in Christ and their sins are forgiven and they're given eternal life, the only cost is to Jesus and there is no cost to you. Okay? We are not talking about the gift of salvation. We are talking about the cost of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus and what Jesus is asking for us to do. Discipleship is costly. And he doesn't want, Jesus doesn't want us to be surprised about this. He wants us to be prepared. And it's by far the best way to go. To have his strength each step of the way. And so uh, Jesus gives uh, an illustration, the construction project example, verses 28 through 30. That's, an e that's a hard way to say building a tower. It's a construction project. And so Jesus gives this parable. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Why would they do that? Well, a tower might be a lookout in a, over a field, over the, over the property. Uh, it would be a stone structure, and it would be high enough so you could see from a distance. Also, it, could be, uh, it, it would be common, too, to store grain inside like a small silo. And in some instances, instances a tower had room for people to live in. Suppose you want to build a tower, and Jesus says, this is logical, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Uh, building projects require management, it requires a thought process, it requires uh, making an estimate whether you have the resources, uh, do you have the cash, do you, do you have the proper architecture, do you have the proper engineering so this thing doesn't fall down? Do you have the proper skill in constructing it? 
Do you have the right people? Those are the kinds of things you think about when you make, have a building project. And he goes on, verse 29 says, For if you lay a foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. It would be embarrassing for a man to take the time to go through this whole process and then to lay a foundation, which is the most important part and perhaps the most exacting part of having everything just right and level so everything else will stand firm. And so they laid the foundation and they begin to build. And, you know, they've, they've, had to, they've drawn up the plans. All these things have happened. And then... The guy miscalculated, and he just plain doesn't have the resources to finish. So there it is. Now, in our world, we see things like that. Not so much out of stone structures. It's easy to see something unfinished out of a wooden structure. But the, the imagery here for Jesus is, you know, there are going to be people walking by here for 50 years and saying, don't do that. Look what he did. That was stupid. And the people will laugh. And Jesus' audience understood it. All this just because somebody miscalculated? Discipleship requires that we need to count the cost. That we need to be wise. That we need to make sure we have the right information before we embark on some big idea or some big plan. Um, Sometimes Christians really make foolish decisions and they just think if they just jump in, God's going to take care of them, but they haven't thought through any of it. Jesus wants us to think and to plan and evaluate and be ready for hard stuff, to be realistic, not just to have, you know, everything's going to work out great. Um, Jesus is preparing us to be ready for our daily walk with him. Verses 31 and 32, the military war assessment example. He says, suppose a king is about to go out to war against another king. Uh, won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? Is that a no-brainer? Maybe not. If you take 10,000 men against 20,000 men in a battle, you better know what you're doing. You better have a good military strategy. You better know their capabilities. Um, you know what? Or they all may die. There needs to be careful thought and wisdom and planning and risk assessment. If it's not worth the risk, choose plan B. Is there ever a time in your life where it's going to be okay to choose plan B? Not in following Jesus, but it may be the core. Plan B might be taking another direction in your life, even though it's not your first choice. Verse 32, if he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off, and will ask for terms of peace. Uh, this could be a wise choice, saving his army, saving those resources. And if he has a good negotiating team, hopefully he can negotiate 
a reasonable peace, even though he's going to lose the battle. Jesus' point is to count the cost, to reflect, to get advice, to seek wise counsel, be prepared for surprise. How, how will you handle the worst-case scenario? When you send somebody to Turkey, they have to think of all of these things. We need to think of all these things, whether we're going to Turkey or not. We need to be ready. We need to know what we're up against, one day at a time. Verse 33, the, the, well, let me just stop. And uh, Okay, as I thought about this, it's not fair, you know, because I'm a pastor and I get put in a different category. But I just look back over my life. What were the, some of those times where I really had to count the cost? It was really a big deal. Well, the first major one for me was, as a brand new Christian, should I go to seminary or not? And um, that was a big decision for our family. I was married. I had one daughter. I had just graduated from college. Brand new Christian. Didn't know anything. And so a friend, a pastor, encouraged me to apply to seminary, and I did. And I didn't want to be a pastor, but I wanted to study the Bible, and so that was the reason I was going, and that was a good reason, and he, that was good enough for him. And um, I, I had to fill out this big, long application and write out my personal faith story, and lo and behold, to my great surprise, I got accepted. They didn't accept me for the year I was applying for. Next fall, they accepted me one year out, which in the wisdom of God was really a good thing. What was the big deal? Well, I had to, I was in great credit card debt. It's a brand new Christian. I didn't know much about the Bible yet. I needed to be discipled, and we needed to think through some big things. What is seminary life like? What is, what is, what's the schoolwork like? Can I handle the schoolwork? Is it, well, I hate this schoolwork. Um, what is it like to live in another city like Dallas, Texas? And uh, what, what am I going to do for work there? Where will I live? Where will my family live? How will, how will our marriage do? How will, how will our daughter do? So this is, we were just counting the cost. And we decided, yes, let's go. And it was a long haul, five years. And it was, there was no vacation in there. And um, some of the best years of our life. And then the next thing that came along was my first um, real job as a pastor. It was associate pastor. That wasn't quite as hard because it was kind of a safe environment. It was a good experience for five years. And I sort of uh, was continued to be mentored as a pastor. And then the hard one came uh, in 1986 uh, when we had the opportunity to move to Stoughton, Wisconsin. And that was... A, totally different than we'd ever been in. And believe me, it was a much harder situation than we'd ever been in. But probably God had been preparing us for a harder situation. And uh, we lived through 21 years there. And this one was kind of an easy one, but um, it, it was a big question. Do we go north of where we lived and uh, we, we always thought God was going to take us west one day when our, because all of our kids were out there and our parents had gone to heaven. We just thought one day we'll be free, and, and it was so clear. So uh, we're, we're glad 
God brought us to Eau Claire. But those are some things where we had to think things through. Now, there's a lot of things you have to think through to count the costs, to evaluate and make important decisions, whether it's with your finances, um, buying a home, wh whatever it is. There's a lot of things that you count the cost. I, I love that principle. When you, when you enter into relationships, when you enter into marriage, you have to think about all the things that are coming and be prepared. Verse 33, the cost of total commitment. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything that you have, you cannot be my disciples. These are not easy, are they? Give up everything you have. Everything. This is a high call. Give up your family. Give up your job. Give up your stuff, your junk, your property, your savings, your income. Give it up. And place it all at the hands, at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. And say, Jesus... I'm giving this to you. You are my Lord. You are leading me. And I surrender it to you. That's true discipleship. That's what Jesus calls for. I don't think you can manage it as well as he can. I've tried and I don't do very well. The big issue is can you trust him? Can you trust him with everything? Can you trust him with your money? Can you trust him with your family, your kids? Can you trust him with your future, your kids' future? Can you trust him when he says he wants you to give generously, give back to him? Some of you can't. Some of you can't trust him with your money. Last part, verses uh, 34 and 35. My effectiveness rating in following Jesus. My effective rating. Verse uh, 34, the risk of total failure. Verse 34, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how, do, can, how can it be made salty again? So salt was a premium uh, product in the uh, first century. It was so valuable, it was sometimes used to pay Roman soldiers cash. That was their salary. It uh, was very important in uh, for preparation of food and keeping food from decaying, sometimes used in fertilizer, sometimes used uh, in, to start fires. Uh, it was extremely value. Now, we know salt. When we talk about salt in our culture, we're talking about sodium chloride. And its saltiness does not degenerate. But that's not what Jesus was talking about in the first century. 
their salt came from the Dead Sea, and it was an impure kind. And it could lose its saltiness. It could degenerate because of the impurities. Um, and he says, it is neither fit for the soil as fertilizer or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. It is no longer effective. And it is thrown out. Is it possible, here's the question, is it possible that a Christ follower can lose their effectiveness for Christ? And the answer is yes. You can lose your effectiveness for Jesus Christ when you start becoming more like your world and not like Him. When you start putting yourself first and Him somewhere else, you begin to lose your effectiveness. You don't have an influence for Christ. You don't make an impact in your generation or even in your family. And Jesus said, it becomes worthless. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think it's talking about losing your salvation. If somebody is really a child of God, if somebody is really born again, this is not talking about losing your salvation. This is about ineffective discipleship and being worthless as a disciple. That is not a good place to be. Now, the Apostle Paul deals with that a little bit in a couple of different places. One of those is in 1 Corinthians 11, where people were abusing the Lord's table and taking the Lord's table and not honoring Jesus Christ in that time. And the scripture says God took some of them home early. And they, some of them were actually had a physical illness because of it. God can discipline his children. In verse 35, there's an invitation to reflect. And here's how Jesus ends this passage. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. We have ears. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Jesus is calling us to listen. Now, if you know uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebraic form, meaning from Hebrew, the word hear carries more than we think of, you know, I grew up thinking of hearing is about vibrations that go into the ear. And if I perceive them, then they become sound, okay? So I can hear words. But the Hebrew idea of hearing, uh, Hebrew six, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that leads into a whole line of commandments. And what is the point here? To hear is to pay attention and follow. To hear is to obey. That's what Jesus is asking. He who has an ear, let him hear. And follow through. Jesus is calling us to the highest obedience. The question is, do you hear? Do you hear him in a way that you want to follow?
I picked a couple of passages to think about as we close our service this morning to reflect, to think about uh, following Jesus, sort of look, a quick look at our lives from a couple of different passages um, to help guide our thinking as we reflect. Galatians 5, 19 through 23 is the first one. I like to use this for myself because sometimes I get a little sloppy. I want to go back and see, is there anything that's slipping to the f- surface that is not fitting with the follower of Christ? Here's a list, and this is really a list to describe people who don't know Jesus yet, Uh, people living in the power of their own strength. Now, a believer can also live in the power of their own strength, and here they are, the acts of the flesh, meaning my human capacity without God. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, having a sexual relationship with somebody when you're not married to them. That's called sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Debauchery is like the -the over-the-top party, totally immoral. Uh, Idolatry, that's about putting something ahead of God. It might be an actual religious idol. It could be an object that you own. could be a person. could be a career, something that becomes the most important idolatry and witchcraft, hatred and discord and jealousy um, bring, in the church it brings division, it brings pride, uh, jealousy, fits of rage. How are you doing? How, how do you handle your anger? Um, selfish ambition, pushing yourself first, dissensions and factions and envy, Drunkenness, misuse of alcohol, or other chemistry, illegal or legal, and orgies and the like. That means the list is longer. And then we go to, uh, so think in terms of, is there anything on that list that creeps up into your life that you want to deal with before God? And then we, uh, the second part here is uh, verse 22. And this speaks of a spirit-empowered life. Some, uh, a follower of Christ, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is bringing fruit out, is, is on display. God is at work, and a character is being changed. Where I become... Uh, uh, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, sacrificial love, uh, putting others before me. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, something that happens on the inside, and it's not based on my outer circumstances, whether I win the lottery or not. It's based on something God has done within me that brings me joy. And peace, again, not based on your outward circumstances. It's an inner peace. And what I've learned in life, and it's not, I'm not really smart, but what I've learned in life, if I can go through a lot of difficulty if there's, there's peace inside. It's really hard when everything's raging inside to handle life. And forbearance, that's putting up with difficult people in your life. You look around, you've got some. Um, kindness and goodness and faithfulness, you know, faithful to Jesus, faithful to your church, 
faithful to your family. If you're given a job, you're faithful to follow through and represent Jesus on your job. Gentle and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And uh, it's my goal that I'm finding myself growing in verses 22 and 23. As, as I live and as I walk with Christ, my character will keep changing. Because this whole thing, discipleship is a process. And it's a lifetime process. And it's not like, okay, I, I did this thing on Sunday and now everything is perfect. I've, I've, I've hit the magic formula. No, it's a process and it's a lifetime and it's submission to Christ. And it's learning to make Him the number one priority. I want to end with Romans 12, 1 and 2. Great passage from the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 12. There we go. And the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And, you know, this passage is one of my favorite in the, in the Bible. Is this passage comes after 11 chapters of focusing on what God has done for us. His mercy. All the things that God has done for us. His provision, how Jesus died for us. What it means to be a child of God. What it means that we're citizens of heaven and heaven is our home. And, uh, and then he says, okay... Jesus died for you. Jesus gave everything for you. He gave it all. He didn't hold anything back for you. Will you respond back to him? Not to be saved. Because if you're here, you are saved. If you are one of these people, a brother or sister in Christ. But will you voluntarily offer yourself back to him? Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Not that you're going to die today, at least physically, but to live for Him, a living sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. This is your true discipleship. And then do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will, because that's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to transform us, to be changing us, to be more and more like Jesus. And, you know, it's easy for me to think about my life because when I was 25 years old, I was headed in one way. I didn't know Jesus. I was pretty self-focused. I wasn't a very good person or husband or father. And then I had a, began a relationship with Jesus, and he turned me around. And that's why we call it conversion, because there ought to be a new direction. And for me, I could see it. I needed it, and I wanted it. And I've tried to stay in that direction. And I get sloppy, and I fall down. But when you fall down, get back up. When you fail, we all do, get back up. And we have this provision with God that when we sin, He will forgive us. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And we have that promise 
that we can be cleansed when we fail. And so I want to close today by giving us an opportunity to offer ourselves back to God in response to what he's done for us. And this is an act of true discipleship. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we just pause before you and we're grateful for what you've done for us. We're grateful for the gift of salvation. We say thank you that you loved us so much that you would send your son and that he would be born on that first Christmas and that he would grow up and he would be a man who lives without sin and he sought to be totally obedient to you, Heavenly Father. And he would go all the way to the cross in obedience as a sacrifice for our sin. And you were pleased. And when Jesus died on the cross, you poured your wrath out on him in total justice to judge sin. And he paid it all because his, his death was our victory. And death did not keep him because he was raised on that first Easter. We give you praise for that and we say thank you. Thank you that you've given us eternal life as a gift, that you've forgiven our sins. We don't deserve that. You've given us grace. You've given us a citizenship in heaven. We say thank you. You've given us a provision that when we fall down as believers... You forgive us. We don't deserve it. And today, Father, we come before you as a church, as a body of Christ, individual members, and we offer ourselves. If you can do that today, just privately in your own heart, do that. Just give yourself, offer yourself in all that you are, not just your body and every part of it, but all that you are, all that you have, place, place it in the hands of Jesus. He is the Lord. And allow him to be your leader in every way. And commit to following him. Just one day at a time, taking up a cross, to represent your sacrifice to follow, your commitment to follow all the way. I thank you, God, for your church, that we are the body of Christ. Jesus is our head. Lead us forward. May we follow for Jesus' sake.